This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Acquisition University and the Defense Innovation Unit have teamed up to offer what you might call an acquisition baptism. It's what they call an immersive course to get procurement people trained in commercial practices for buying goods and services faster, as DIU officials like to put it, at the speed of relevance. Here with more about the course to be offered this fall, the Defense Innovation Unit's Director of Acquisition, Charissa Tamayori. Ms. Tamayori, good to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me. What is an immersive experience for acquisition? It sounds like you put goggles on and walk around in a room, or what's going on here? Yeah, so one of the things that we noticed with DIU's mission really is to accelerate the adoption of commercial technology across the Department of Defense. We do that um, by really having a deep understanding of the commercial sector um, and through our acquisition process. And what we've seen as we've been executing our other transaction authorities and our prototypes is that although the OTs, the other transaction authority, has been around for a while, a lot of the contracting and acquisition professionals across the DOD really don't have a thorough understanding of how to use the authority or how DIU utilizes the authority to to really reach these non-traditional vendors. And so what immersive means when it comes to this program is we are, we want our fellows, we want our ICAP fellows, our immersive commercial acquisition program fellows to really gain hands-on experience. I think there's, there's a multitude of online classes, I think, out there, but we really think that the experiential learning is really needed to get those throughout the Department of Defense a thorough understanding on how to actually utilize the the authority as well as the process. So that means this course will take place in person? So this program will actually be virtual. However, they will be working alongside our agreements officers on actual problem sets that DIU is working on, which aligns to all the problems that that we work on uh, across the services. So we are still in a virtual environment, but we've been still been able to execute successfully, even virtually. Okay. And just to make sure we understand, you will be talking specifically in this course about other transaction authorities, but not necessarily or not at all FAR, regular FAR-based acquisitions or DFAR? Correct. Correct. So DIU utilizes, uh, solely utilizes the other transaction authority to execute prototypes. And that's where we really are able to create such uh, an expertise in that area is because that's all that we focus on um, when we execute our prototypes. And also just to, again, make sure we understand the parameters, you can't use OTA for like emergency rapid acquisition. That's a whole different area of acquisition. Correct. We utilize the other transaction authority to prototype efforts. There are some instances um, like we've recently seen with the coronavirus where you can rapidly prototype solutions to field very quickly. So I guess it depends on what what we're coming forward, but we're not a quick way to get to an end item. If you're an emergency response agency and you need 10 million water bottles the next day, you still have a far way to do that, but not an OTA way. Correct. Who can come to this course? Not every agency has OTA. Most of them do have that authority. So who can come to the course? For this initial launch, we're really targeting government civilian as well as military contracting professionals that are mid to to senior level contracting officials. We really want to make sure that those coming to experience the program to to work with us have a baseline understanding of government procurement. I think that that's really important because you need to know what your baseline rules are in order to know why certain certain aspects are in place. Um, And then to know that knowingly deviate from those things and what those consequences are and or some of the benefits of deviating from from those baseline requirements. 
we are really targeting initially contracting professionals, the GS 13 to 14 range and military officers 04 to 05. All within DOD. All within DOD. We're speaking with Sharissa Tamayori. She's director of acquisition at the Defense Innovation Unit. There is, as you point out, a history to OTA. It goes back quite a number of decades, really. And there's a good deal of case law and regulatory information available about it. But is it fair to say that DIU has gotten really good at it and maybe have paved new ground for how it can be used legally, ethically, and also effectively for a mission? Yes, I believe that is the case 100%. Because we solely focus on executing OTs, we have really been able to hone in on on that specific skill set We think outside of the box while still being cognizant of the rules and regulations that that we have to follow and maintaining an ethical, fair process. I mean, our process is very highly competitive. As we've seen, I think the latest numbers, I think our last year, we received over a thousand submissions on, on our projects. And so it's very highly competitive um, but at the same time, we we keep an open mind and we partner a lot of the DIU personnel are former commercial executives. So that provides us with insight that you don't typically get within your typical acquisition office. So we are able to understand a little bit about the venture capitalist community, a little bit about the motivations of some of these private companies that you may not otherwise get exposed to in your traditional acquisition organization. That's really important because the more that we understand how the commercial sector works and their motivations, the better that we can as contracting professionals craft better agreements and create agreements that are mutually beneficial both to the government as well as to commercial industry. And I think a lot of people are mystified by the next step once you have acquired a prototype with all this competition and say the Army or the Air Force says, great, we love it. We'd like 10,000 of them, whatever it is. And that it's called the valley of death or there's different terms for it, but moving to the production level where OTA is no longer the methodology of choice for the acquisition. Is that part of the course too, how to navigate that next step? Yeah. So the acquisition team here at DIU, we do a lot of work working with our partner organizations. So that will definitely be a part of that experience because they're going to be working alongside our agreements officers. On all of our prototype efforts, we do reach out to the contracting entity that will be performing the production a contract, whether it be a FAR contract or an OT, another transaction agreement, a production other transaction agreement. And so they can see the work that we do internally, the highly competitive process, how we meet all the statutory requirements, and then how we communicate that and share our documents with the follow-on contracting activity to help smooth that process. And one of the things that we're hoping to get out of this program is to just share share that information. So share share the process, share DIUs, what DIU does, how DIU does it, and just share the information across across the Department of Defense so there is a better understanding and a better comfort level, I think, with uh, those who will then execute the production efforts. We are real 1102s. We are actually very experienced contracting officers that have had experience across the DOD. And just having that comfort level, I think, will help significantly with some of our transitions. And just to detail, there is a mechanism for the occasional production OTA type of award that does exist. Correct. Correct. Follow-on contracts for production can either be FAR type or they can be a production OT, assuming the production or assuming the contracting office executing the production OT has OT authority. How are you selecting the people that will participate and how many will participate? And I guess my compound question is, do you expect those people to become 
kind of train the trainer type folks. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we are initially selecting six six ICAP fellows for this uh, initial round. We chose six because that is the number of portfolios that we have. So DIU is split up into six portfolio areas, which really align to where the commercial sector is leading in innovation. Those portfolio areas are artificial intelligence and machine learning, autonomy, cyber, energy, human systems, and space. And we have one agreements officer who works on each portfolio. And because we really want this to be a learning opportunity and, and we want to make sure that, that uh, our ICAP fellows have a mentor, we're aligning each ICAP selectee to one of the portfolio areas and aligned with our um, agreements officer. So they're going to work alongside with that that person on um, on actual projects. To your question about selection, so we're really looking for for highly motivated people who are who are willing to think critically and think outside of the box. Obviously, contracting professionals to begin with, assuming the program is successful, we're, we're very excited about it as well as the partnership that we're having, that we're, we're doing with the Defense Acquisition University on this, that assuming it's successful, we were looking to expand to maybe other career fields outside of contracting. But for the initial round, it will be just for contracts. You said that it would be a virtual class, but what are the time requirements and time of day requirements and so forth to really, and how long will this whole thing run when the people are selected? Yeah, great question. Thank you. So this will be a 12-month program. It's a full-time 12-month virtual program, so we're not asking anyone to move locations, but we are asking for them to be 100% dedicated during the workday to this effort. The primary focus of the experience will be working on projects, but we will also have quarterly training in partnership with the Defense Acquisition University, and they recently launched a new credentialing program. So we're incorporating their other transaction credentialing program as a part of this program. There will also be constant collaboration, like I mentioned, with the DIU's commercial engagement team, which will really provide much more in-depth understanding of the commercial market and some of the, the concerns, some of the constraints that, that the commercial industry has to deal with um, that will expose our fellows to some of the concerns and some of the just the items that we all need to be aware of as we craft agreements, as we negotiate with these companies. And over this year, it's all day for the year or is it just an hour a day for the year? It will be all day for the year. So it's a major commitment on somebody's part, really, for it, career development and, and the agency has to give them leave from their regular workload. Correct. Sharissa Tamayori is Director of Acquisition at the Defense Innovation Unit. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to how to apply for the course at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember 
looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.